You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. Through a combination of solo episodes and interviews with some incredible guests, we bring you the insights and practical tips to create happier working environments for you and your teams. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague and leaving a rating or review on your favorite platform. One of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is I do think that there's such a bad publicity out there. There's the, the extreme, those horrible bosses that you know we hear about in the news and we see in the movies, but there's so many different steps to get you to be that extreme. And it's creating this awareness of the little things that you can do that can be bad so that you don't get to the point. So the book is called Bad Bosses Ruin Lives. And what I want to do is I want to get people to the point where, you know, you're learning how to be a great boss so you don't get to that point where you ruin people's lives. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm so delighted you decided to tune in today. And today's guest is Deborah Corey. We talk all things bad bosses, but maybe not in a way that you think. So we're looking at how to recognise the bad boss tendencies in all of us become aware of those tendencies and take action to combat any of the things that we personally are doing to be a bad boss, essentially. Stay tuned till the end where I will do a synopsis of some of the key points that were covered and the actions that you can take straight away after listening to this podcast episode. And I would love to hear your thoughts. So feel free to join the conversation. You will find all of my social links on the website happieratwork.ie. Deborah, you're absolutely welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you as my guest today. I know we had a chat a good number of months ago now, so I'm looking forward to kind of a catch-up chat, let's say, with a secret recording so people can listen in to what we're saying this time. Do you want to let people know a little bit about your background, how you got to doing what you're doing? Sure. So most of my career, I've been an HR person, worked in lots of different amazing organizations, had a fantastic time. And then um, at one point in time, about six years ago, I got put on gardening leave, which is an American is a very strange concept. You know, I'd put people on gardening leave, but I'd never been on it. So I got out my bucket list and on my bucket list was to write a book. And long story short, that's how I wrote my first book. And my first book was really about here are some tips to help you better. It was in communications. These are the things I've done wrong throughout my career. Don't ever make those mistakes. Here's a model, that type of thing. So I sort of fell into that and that sort of opened the door to a new career. I did take my next HR job, but I took it in an organization where the CEO wanted me to write a book with him. So I kept writing, which was lovely. So, you know, zoom ahead. I think it's been six years and I've written six books. Um, no, five books. Sorry, the sixth one's not out yet. And I've gone out on my own now. So I, I write books and now I do things like um, I do consulting and I do speaking and my title is chief pay it forward officer. So that sort of says what I'm all about. I pay it forward through my books and, you know, having a chance to talk to you, the two of us are paying it forward. So I love it. I love that. It's such a nice concept, I think, pay it forward. Like for anyone who doesn't know what that means, maybe I was going to say, go look it up. We've got you here. What does that mean to you? Well, if I thought about what I've been doing as I've progressed in my career, it was more about sharing and helping either my employees when I was in a company or being out on my own, I'm paying it forward by, you know, I'm very honest about mistakes that I've made in all my books. You know, I'm writing a book now, as you know, because I interviewed you. Um, my next book that'll be coming out next is on bosses. And I'm talking about bad bosses and great bosses. 
So I've got lots of examples of what I've done wrong. So I pay it forward so that people can learn from my mistakes, but then I also pay it forward by helping people, teaching people things they might not have known or sharing models. So it's really just, you know, being able to pass things on, then you make it your own and then you pass it on. So it's hopefully it's a continuum. I absolutely love that idea. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to do. I try to be really honest on the podcast about my own career history and mistakes that I've made. If anyone's been listening for a while, you know, I've shared numerous times the mistakes I've made, the issues I've had at work. But I'd I'd love to know if you're willing to share, Deborah, what are the kind of top mistakes that you've made in your career? I think probably a good question. One of my biggest mistakes is that I thought that in order to be great at my job, in order to get ahead, I had to sort of not share my whole self and not, you know, spend so much time focusing on the work that I didn't show me as a human being. And I had one of these aha moments. It was a great aha moment. I was leaving a company. And for those, I was in the US. So you only work two weeks when you're given your notice in the US. I handed in my notice. And for the last two weeks, I let my hair down and I just got out of my office and talked to people and had fun. And as I was leaving, people are like, why didn't you act like this before? You know, you're a completely different person. So that to me was a huge aha moment. Don't lock, don't lock Deborah in the room. She needs to come out and, you know, be a part of things. Probably the next one, and this is sort of evolves into where I am now. I'm sort of known as a rebel because my second book was the rebel playbook. So I also learned, you know, don't just accept things the way they are. You know, I grew up in a, you know, traditional HR type of role. So, you know, question, challenge, and and all of my books, I try to make sure that when I write these things in the books, it's not just hearing the same things over and over again. Um, you know, I learn when I write a book so that I can be able to, you know, pass things. So it's it's really about that whole have a different type of a of a mindset and do that. And then I guess the last one is just not to be afraid. You know, I'm doing things that I you know, same as you do things I've never done before. I mean, every time I write a book, I'm like, oh my gosh, why am I writing this book? And I I announce it on social media so that I have to do it. Yeah, because if not, I wouldn't write it. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, for accountability. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I love that idea of doing things afraid because I think oftentimes we look at other people and we falsely assume that they've got everything together. And of course, Deborah is an amazing writer. And of course, she she has this uh, amazing book that's coming out. And I think it's, um, or I know that it's uh, Maya Angelou who was saying like, from an imposter syndrome perspective, oh, finally, ev- with every published book that, that came out, it was like, finally, the jig is up. They're going to realize that I've, I've been totally faking it this whole time. And I think it's something that we can't escape from as humans and we shouldn't let it get in the way of anything that we do. You know, it's really about focusing on what it is that you want to do and, and do it anyway. Do it afraid. Do it just by feeling like you're a total fraud or just by feeling like you're a beginner or whatever it is whatever fear you have about doing the thing that you really want to do. I think just try and get beyond that. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I speak at events all around the world. As a matter of fact, I'm going to India to do a keynote. So I get on stages in front of hundreds, thousands of people. And, you know, people always say to me, oh, I could never do that. Or the person after me, like, oh my gosh, you look so relaxed. I'm like, no, I was, I get nervous every single time I go on stage, but I was a competitive gymnast. You're always nervous. And that's what fuel to me, I see it as a positive. And I think it's the way you look at life. So I see fear as a way to push me and challenge myself to do things that I'm afraid of. 
I don't see it as a negative because it's the fear that gets you to learn new things. You know, this book that I'm writing now, I interviewed, well, as you know, I interviewed 24 thought leaders. I learned so much every single time I, I spoke to those people. And if I had just sat in my corner and said, I can't write a book on this because I'm not an expert on every aspect of it, I, I would have missed this amazing learning opportunity. And, and hopefully the book then can, you know, other people can learn through it. So, yeah. Brilliant. I love that. And, you know, maybe we can dig a bit more into this concept of bad bosses. And I want to kind of preempt that by saying I've been a boss and I'm sure I've been a bad boss. Also, I have had bad bosses. And on a recent podcast episode, as we're recording this, it hasn't been released yet. But as people are listening, it would be from a few weeks ago. It was a you know, bosses in the media, especially often get a hard time. Um, you know, if I listen to the radio at home, for example, they'll talk about bosses and oh, what, what would the boss think of that? And and there's this kind of persona of the boss, whereas I'm seeing a different type of leader starting to emerge in conversation that I'm seeing on social media about something that's a lot more positive than just this kind of persona of a boss. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about that and maybe the shifts that you've seen before we start talking about this concept of bad bosses. So yeah, it's interesting. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is I do think that there's such a bad publicity out there. There's the the extreme, those horrible bosses that you know we hear about in the news and we see in the movies, but there's so many different steps to get you to be that extreme. And it's creating this awareness of the little things that you can do that can be bad so that you don't get to the point. So the book is called Bad Bosses Ruin Lives. And what I want to do is I want to get people to the point where, you know, you're learning how to be a great boss so you don't get to that point where you ruin people's lives. Because, you know, I've made so many little mistakes throughout my career. And so it's all about that creating that awareness as to what are the different things. So we came up at the end. I can't remember how many I had when, when you and I spoke, but we ended up with 10 different types of bad bosses. Um, and they're purposely not horrible names or anything like that. They're everyday type of bad bosses, you know, like somebody who is um, a hoarder, someone who just doesn't communicate to people. They might not do it intentionally. They might not have communication skills or they might just think, oh, well, my people don't need to know that, that type of thing, or unappreciated. My last two books that I wrote are on appreciation. And funnily enough, that is the one I did a survey and unappreciator is the most common of the 10 types, which is Good and it's bad. Like I wrote a book on that. It can hopefully help people, but it's bad that I think it was almost like 83% of people said they've had a boss who's an unappreciator. And I'm sure if I went to all of those people, at least half of them would say, Oh my gosh, I feel horrible that my people felt that way about me. You know, I didn't realize I wasn't doing that. What do I do now? So that's, you know, that to me, those are the kind of people I want to help. I want the people who are going to be like, Please, please. Help me, help me get better. Help me make sure I don't get be a bad boss. People who are over there ruining lives, do you know what? There's nothing I can do about them. They, that's just who they are. They're not going to listen to little old me. I say little old me. My husband wrote it with me, and he's six three. So there you go. <laughs> it's. I think it's a really interesting and important distinction that you've made there, Deborah. That there are some people who are out there who don't really care what the impact that they have on other people are, and they are ruining lives because I've had terrible bosses and. In some cases, yeah, I don't think they really cared. They knew what they were doing. They didn't really care. 
But then on the other hand, you have these people who want to be an effective boss, but maybe don't realize. And maybe it's a case of, you know, how do we educate people that they are not a great boss? I'm trying to pick my words quite carefully here. But, you know, for me, it's a self-awareness piece. Maybe people are afraid to give direct feedback. Maybe it's even hard to do 360 feedback because the assumption being that you're going to know exactly who wrote what by the way they say it. So any thoughts on on maybe how to direct people to become more self-aware and to realize that they are an ineffective boss, let's say? I think you know, use the word awareness. To me, that is the first thing, becoming more self-aware about it. I mentioned my husband's writing the book with me, and he's a technology person. So he's creating an online test because I think sometimes it's hard to say, you read the bit on hoarder, you read the bit on unappreciator, and you think, oh, that's not me. Sometimes you need some questions that then say, okay, that's actually you. So I think it is just, you know, really having those hard conversations with yourself. We were just writing the bit about some next steps on for certain ones. And, you know, a lot of my questions are, I want you to go back and look at a situation because to me, being self-reflective is where I learn it the most. I want you to think about a situation where, I don't know, feedback where a feedback conversation just did not go well. Why didn't it go well? Talk to the person. Why did they not think it went well? So I think it's really just being like opening the door to be self-aware. And although I said at the beginning that there's some people who just are going to be a bad boss forever, the title of the book comes from when I was writing my second book, I told my boss, my co-author, a story of, of how a bad boss ruined my life. And this boss just made, you know, the usual stories made my life a living hell, all that type of stuff. But I didn't have the courage to go to my boss. And afterwards, after I left and I recovered a little bit, I went back to them and they didn't know they had done it. And to me, that was an aha moment. And that's another reason why I wanted to write it is because, you know, they didn't intentionally do it. And I wish I had had the courage to go to them earlier and let them know because then I wouldn't have been impacted and all the other people. So, yeah, it begins with awareness. And then the next one is acceptance and then action. Absolutely. I think let's assume that people are good. I always start from there. Yeah, let's assume that that it wasn't intentional, that if someone is, if you're currently experiencing this right now as you're listening, let's assume that the person who is managing you is not intending to be a bad boss, but they just don't have that self-awareness or no one's ever told them what they need to do or no one's ever told them that they behave in a certain way that's triggering or that is belittling or whatever it might be. I love what you said about this coming on to the kind of self-reflection. But before we talked about self-reflection, it was this idea that when you hear a description, you think that's not me. But that's because that's not the image we have of ourselves. You know, I'm not a hoarder or I'm not an underappreciator or an unappreciator because I share information and I tell my team that they're doing or I don't want to be that person, essentially. But I love how you said you're going to create this quiz around it and people can take this online test and determine from questions like actually your, you know, and, and again, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot the intention versus the action and how we judge other people on their actions because we can't see what their intentions were unless they tell us what their intentions are. We, we don't know what they are, but we know our own intentions and we judge ourselves on our intentions and how noble we are. But if that's not showing up in our actions, then there's a conflict there, let's say. 
And so someone's intention might not marry up with this image of someone who is not an amazing boss. So I love this idea. First of all, that self-awareness and acceptance that maybe I am not the best boss, maybe I'm not, and then take an action to address it. And it's interesting, even the words we used for the types of bad bosses, we tried not to pick the ones that get a lot of media press are the ones that are, you know, a bit insulting, a bit cheeky. And I would have loved to, but I thought that's just going to make somebody put up the, the defenses. Oh, that could never be me. Right. Yeah. Probably the worst one we used was a coercer, which has a negative connotation, but we wanted to make it approachable. And what was really fascinating as you were talking, it made me, it made me realize this, that um, as we were writing the different chapters, like when we first came up with the 10 types, I thought, well, I'm maybe two or three of them. I had an example for every single chapter and it was cathartic. It actually, it actually, to me, it was like, I hadn't really thought about it until I was writing. These are the things you need to do. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's what I've done before. And I did probably put a good amount of those stories in the book because I sort of feel my whole approach to writing and speaking and consulting is, is if I show people the human side that I've made these mistakes, then it makes it more approachable. You know, like Deborah Corey, who's written, you know, it'll be six books, six books and, you know, consults with companies around the world. Oh my God, she was a hoarder. So I sort of embarrass myself, but I do it to try to help other people. I mean, when you mentioned that word, the first thing that sprung to my mind was this negative connotation of hoarding information for a power play. So you're withholding information from people so that people have to come to you if they want that information, that you're not kind of sharing it widely so that everyone knows what they need to know, but rather you're using yourself as a gatekeeper and it makes, you know, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you have a bit of power. Like that's something that I haven't tackled on the podcast yet because I don't know enough about it. And I'd love to talk to someone about this idea of power at work and what it means and power dynamics and all of that fun stuff. But I'm still trying to get my head around it myself, I think. I don't want to pass myself as an expert. But, you know, I don't think it's all power, though, because I do think that there's there's sort of two sides of it. You've got the people who do it from a power. But then there's also people, and and I see this in HR all the time, there's people who do it because it's almost the opposite. It's because they want to protect their people. Ah, they don't want to burden people with too much information. One of the people I interviewed was Kim Scott, who does, um, you've probably read her book, it's called Radical Candor. And she's got this, this model, which she was kind enough to let me include in the book. It's this model that talks about why people don't give feedback. And there's some people who don't give feedback because they're too kind. They're like, oh, it'll hurt their feelings if I tell them that I can't give them the feedback. And I do think to some extent with all of these types of bad bosses, some sometimes we do it because we think we're doing the right thing for our people. And it's actually not the right thing for our people. And a hoarder is a perfect example of that one. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Do you want to talk about some of the other 10 types? So you mentioned already the unappreciator and the hoarder. What are some of the other types? So I mentioned we did a survey. So we did a global survey and it was fascinating. And and one of the reasons we did the survey is we thought, if we're going to talk about these 10 types of bosses, we want to make sure that it's not just us that think that these, these types of bad bosses exist, that other people have heard them. And for each of the 10 types of bad bosses, at least 50% of people had these types of bad bosses. So they definitely, definitely exist out there. So 
if I go through, I'm just going to go through high level and then you tell me which ones that, that you like. So you've got the avoider. That was the joke one for that one is that that's the ghost. Then you've got the hoarder, the unappreciator, the pretender, the one who wears the mask, the blocker, the one who gets in the way, the firefighter, go from fire to fire, micromanager, that was the second most common one. The blamer, I was, blamer actually got the least, which I was really pleased about because I think, you know, when I started in the workplace, a blamer was a really common one, you know, like your, your boss would throw you under the bus, but that one was the lowest. And then the coercer, I thought the coercer would be the highest, but it wasn't, it was, it was um, probably about third. The unappreciator was the, was the top one. So yeah, those are the 10. And then that's the first part of the book. But then the second part of the book, which is twice as big as the first part, is okay, great. Now what do I do? And that's where we do the 14 building blocks. So what are the building blocks to make you a great boss? So we we do the awareness, get rid of the bad stuff, and then we move on. Okay, great. Like you've got micromanager tendencies. I, I have that, I have to admit. I've been a micromanager. Now these are the kinds of things that you can do to get better at it. Brilliant. And the 14 building blocks, are they universal for everyone or are they specific to the different types and they may they may overlap across the different types? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point because we kept going back and forth on how to do it. So when you take the bad boss test, we're going to align it to the bad boss. But that doesn't mean, though, that those are the ones that you need to focus on because there might be other things. So we looked at what are all that we sort of pulled together everything that that we've done from leadership, what we've learned, talking to other people, and we brought it all into one. So you know how like there's one whole like I wrote a book on appreciation. There's a whole book about appreciation. There's tons of books about things like feedback, tons of books about I call them of the 14, six are the um the six pack. So those are the ones that are the foundation. So things like empathy, compassion, trust, respect, authenticity, vulnerability. You know, there's, again, tons of books on all these subjects. So my quest in paying it forward is sort of bring them all together, give you some reasons why it's important to do these, give you some tips. So if it's something that, you know, maybe four tips will help you get better, you're done. And then if you want to learn more, this is where you can go to learn more on those. So that was the whole concept of the book. And the building blocks. Brilliant. I love that. You know, I said it before, but I love that it's it's uh, tied in with having a test. So even if you don't recognize yourself in the description, you're certainly going to recognize yourself in the questions that are asked. You know, it helps people to build that self-awareness around themselves. I'd love to come back to, you said that micromanager was one of the top ones. And I know certainly I have been micromanaged and I'm sure I have been a micromanager in the past as well. I'd love to dig into that in a little bit more detail. As a micromanager, I can tell you. So what we tried to do is you talked about what are some of the traps that that you fall into. So, you know, some of the traps for a micromanager are like, you think that's what your people need. That's what I thought. I thought my job as a manager is to help my people learn, help my people do a great job, and I'm going to hold their hand doing it. Little did I know that that was not the right thing to do when it comes to that. Or I don't have the time to teach my people. That wasn't me, but I don't have the time to teach my people, so I'm not going to do it. So yeah, there's certain traps that that people fall into when it comes to that. But then also we wanted to talk about the consequences because again, you know, if you need to convince somebody, you know, some people might think oh, I have no problem with micromanaging. There's no doesn't have any consequences. 
So then we map out consequences, things like it'll slow people down because they have to come to you all the time. It can lead to low morale. It's like, oh, my boss doesn't even trust and respect me. People aren't going to develop if you're a micromanager. It can stifle creativity and innovation. So it has lots of different consequences. So again, we want to create those light bulb aha moments for people. But yeah, micromanager, it's interesting. I was, again, I was surprised we didn't, it wasn't number one. It was, I think it was number two, but a lot of us had have, have micromanagers. The other thing that was really fascinating was when we asked people about the bad bosses, it was multiple and multiple. Like I had some people write to me and say, I had one boss that was all 10. So you're not just one. You've got little bit. It's like when you take personality tests, you've got little bits of this and a little bit of that. And I think that's what happens with bad bosses because there are a lot of them overlap also. So, you know, like micromanager might overlap with hoarder. There's a lot of similarities between that and even like a coercer. So when you, you know, when you look at the consequences, I felt like a broken record sometimes. It's like, okay, if you do this, it's your people are never going to learn. And then in the next bit, if you do this, people are never going to learn. So yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd love to understand a bit more about the avoider because again, that's something I can totally relate to as well. That I've had a boss that was completely laissez-faire. You just get on with it, no guidance, no instruction whatsoever, which may be an ignorer or an avoider. <laughs> Not sure which. And I'm sure that I have done it as well in the past. In fact, I know I have done it. You avoid having difficult conversations because it's too hard and you want to spare people's feelings. Do you want to talk to me a little bit more about what you learned about that? Yeah. And it's interesting. So for each of the types of bad bosses, I went out and I asked for stories. So um, people gave me stories for those. And then some of them are my own stories. But, you know, one of the stories I include in that one is, um, you know, I had a boss who was a voider. And, you know, I was working on this project for six months and I kept going every, every week in our one-to-ones, you know, how am I doing on this project? How am I doing in this project? Just, you know, oh, fine, fine. Avoiding me, just not saying anything. Get to the end of the six months. What do you think happened? It was all wrong. I had to start all over again. I felt like shit. You know, the business just lost six months. So yeah, I mean. That's crazy. But again, thinking about the psychology behind that, what was your boss's reason? Like no time, or I'm sure Deborah has it sorted and trying to think of the positive intent behind it as well, rather than the negative intent. I think for this particular person, they were too busy. They thought I could read their mind. Ah, okay. Mind reader. (laughs) So I think that a 10 minute conversation about the project they thought would be enough that I could just then do it, you know, and she hired me as a senior level person. Of course, I'll know what to do with this. But it was a really important lesson for me because the next time around, I didn't let her avoid me because I saw the pain that it caused. So even though the next project, they went to avoid me again, I made sure up front, I did a better job with expectations. And we do talk about expectations in the book as well. Things like, you know, make sure that you're clear about what you want, because, you know, little things like that can lead to avoiding. That's something I talk about all the time as well, is this idea of expectations and setting really clear expectations, especially when it comes to quality and time. So the time piece is something that I've learned recently. Like you need to tell people around how long this is going to take. So if you have an expectation that would take two hours, or if you have an expectation that it should take someone 
a week on and off and with all of their other work that they're doing as well, but also the level of quality so that people don't under or over deliver. And, um, you know, and I always relate this back to my previous corporate role, we're delivering presentations to clients. You could spend hours, once you have the content, you could spend hours doing transitions, doing animations and all sorts of stuff that doesn't really add that much value if you're delivering a presentation. People might be like, wow, how did she do that in PowerPoint? But actually, is it detracting from the message that you're trying to get across? So um, I think, yeah, it's it's so important to set those really clear expectations up front. And it's a really valuable lesson, I think, Deborah. Like they obviously trusted you but you need to set those really clear expectations up front about, but what is expected of you by setting those clear expectations? You know, what is the outcome of this and what is the expectation in terms of how many times we're going to meet and how much of a review you're going to do on my work to date? It also reminds me of a boss that I had and we were talking about a promotion and I had had a previous boss and I was in line for promotion under her And then she left the business, but communicated everything she wanted to my new boss. And I thought, brilliant. This won't take too long now because she's sang my praises and everything. But him being new to the business, new to me, I had to prove myself all over again. So we set up something over the course of three months. We met up every week, I think it was. And we had a discussion about uh, the objectives that I set myself within those three months. And if I met those objectives, then I'd be put forward for promotion. Amazing. And we got to the end of those three months. And of course, throughout, exactly as you said, how am I doing? How are things going? The end of those three months, oh, I don't think you're ready yet. And I thought, oh, this that's really strange because that hasn't been communicated in this entire three-month period. Not once was I told that I'm not on track, that I need to up my game in some area. When I questioned him about that, he said that he would have to check with the job description to exactly see where I wasn't really up to speed or up to scratch or, or whatever it might have been. So that absolutely infuriated me. But I think it's an important lesson. As a manager, you need to really clearly communicate people what you're expecting of and what they're going to get as a result. So if you're setting these goals for people, you need to let them know whether they're on track with those goals. You need to communicate regularly so that when it comes to delivering that type of feedback, it's not a complete and utter surprise all of a sudden to learn that actually, no, we don't think you're ready. Now, as it happens, his boss came to me and said, we actually do think you're ready. I've seen how you're performing. So anyway, that's a a story for another day. (laughs) But back to this idea, yeah, the different... And I think that to me, that kind of falls under that the building blocks, you need to be able to set really clear expectations. Do you want to share some of the other, maybe more generic building blocks that apply across a few different areas? Yeah. I mean, I think the six pack apply across all of them. So no matter if you're, you know, avoider, ignorer, even forget about being bad boss, even a good boss, great boss, you know, things like being empathetic, vulnerable. The one that I, the the last of the six is trust. And that was an interesting one because as we were writing that one, it was just one of those aha moments, how trust leads to everything the other way around. So if, if you don't have trust, nothing else is going to work whatsoever. And I, I shared a story of how um I was rolling out a new benefit program at an organization and I was going around doing roadshows and standing on stage and telling everybody about this great new benefit. And everywhere I went, I had like thank you so much. We love this. This is great. And then I went to one of our uh, manufacturing sites and I stood on the stage 
And I can remember like it was yesterday, the whole back row stood up with chairs over their head and started shaking them at me saying, go home, go home. And just, I don't know how I got through that presentation, but afterwards I went up to the MD. I'm like, what is going on? And he said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but our employees just don't trust. There's no trust in, in anybody in senior leadership. So, you know, as soon as you got on stage, they wouldn't listen to you because they don't trust you. So I had five more sessions to do there. So I learned the important lesson is that I got there early. And as people were sitting in the back row, because they were the troublemakers, I got to know them so that they could trust me. And I asked them questions and I told them about me so they could trust me. But yeah, I think trust is like so, so important, authentic and vulnerable as a leader these days. You know, you have to do that in everything you know, be authentic in how you give feedback and you give appreciation, how you develop people. They all roll into um, into the others. But then the other types of, of building blocks, the other eight, I think I've touched on a couple of them. The other eight from besides the six are things like, they shouldn't be a surprise. If I asked you, you'd guess all of these. Listening, obviously that's a building block as a boss, as a manager. Communications, being able to provide communications, feedback, appreciation, Development and coaching, we separated them out because they are two different ways to help people grow. Empowerment, that's like the opposite of the of the micromanager and the coercer. And then inspiration, which sort of talks about being purpose-driven and making sure that you're a purpose-driven leader. So yeah, those are the eight. So it's a lot to jam into one model. And I'm interesting in the introduction to the building blocks, I was very honest and I said, you know, I know it's too much. I'm a big believer that you keep things short, sweet, so you can remember it. I said, but we couldn't get rid of any of them. There was not one, because we said, if we don't have enough to say about it, it's not going in the book. At the end of writing every single section, we're like, oh my gosh, that's good. Oh no, we have to share that. We have to. So I do apologize that there's 14 of them, but you don't have to do them all at once. Yeah. Like anything, you pick the ones that are going to make the biggest difference. But also, Deborah, it's not as if people are not doing any of these things. So it could be that they're listening, but they're, they need to listen more or that they're communicating, but they need to communicate more or that they're having development conversations, but actually they need to have them a bit more strategically or think a bigger picture of what does this mean for this person's individual development, even if it's not in this company. Even if it's not in this company, what does that mean? What does the kind of bigger picture look like? And inspiration, being an inspiration. So leading others and being a, that role model for other people, I think is is so important as well. And I think I was going to say, I think the thread that rolls through all of them, and that's why I think it makes sense to learn a little bit about each of them, is just to remind ourselves, what's there, five generations in the workplace? So five generations, I'm in the UK, but I'm American. Each of us are managing people of different not just ages, but nationalities and so much diversity. So just because you can develop one person or you can show appreciation to one person doesn't mean that it's going to work for everyone. You know, I've been writing this book with my my husband and I can tell you I've been every one of the 10 bad bosses throughout the process of writing with him because I've never written a book with him before. I've never worked with him before you know, micromanager came out, hoarder. I mean, yes. they all came out. And again, <laughs> I think that's really human. I think it's like, do you know what? They're going to come out from time to time based off of like when I was, you know, the pressure to get it to the editor, some of those bad bosses came out or when he pushed me in ways that my employees didn't push me, they're going to come out. 
So, you know, for me, it's the kind of book I'm going to refer to over, oh gosh, I'm going into hoarder again. What do I need to remind myself? Or, yeah, I'm being a coercer. Yeah, we won't get his offices over there, but we won't get him on the call. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's reassuring, Deborah, that even you having written the book will need to refer back to it. Because I think sometimes when we're trapped in, in our own thinking, and being really emotional about it. It's so handy to have a framework of, okay, what steps do I need to take? I'm going into this mode. What steps do I need to take? And I think you raised a really important distinction there that it's fine for business as usual. It's absolutely fine. And I'm sure everyone's a great boss and whatever. But when things are difficult, that's when these traits maybe come out and you need to recognize those in yourself. So maybe distinguishing between how you behave when you are in business as usual, kind of normal operational mode versus something maybe happens outside of work that causes distress for you or something happens in work that triggers you in some way, or it's just a stressful or a difficult situation that you have to deal with. It's then those kinds of traits might start coming out. Absolutely. And I I share a story of um, when I was new to being a boss, I say new, but you know what? It still comes out every once in a while. I had certain situations that were really stressful to me and um, I, my alter ego, Debbie oh, yeah. came out. <laughs> so we named her. Yeah. So my, my team named her Debbie and we used to put a sign on my door that said, beware, Debbie is here, enter your own risk. And I would put it there saying, you know what, guys, I'm really stressed. You really do not want to come near me right now. Let me just get out of this and then move on. And I said it just again, to show the human side, you know, none of us are perfect. It's trying to figure out How can I, first of all, not bring Debbie out, which I've gotten much better at, but she still comes out. How can I, you know, keep Debbie locked up or can I at least let my team know? And and to be honest with you, they thought it was funny. They did. So instead of it turning into something where I would have like really hurt people's feelings, it turned into something that was just a joke in the office. You know, they're... There's Debbie again. I'm not going in. Are you going in? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's such a nice idea. I think from the perspective of turning it into that joke that you can laugh about, but also having the self-awareness to know that you're in that situation and letting people know that this is what's going on for you so that they know what to expect. But then at the same time, sometimes people come to you when they don't really need to come to you. And if Debbie is out, then maybe they can try and solve the problems on their own and and develop themselves and realize that they can actually solve this problem without actually having to come to you. And I have heard that before, just being upfront, being open about the fact that this is what's going on. It shows that you're human. It shows that you're under a lot of stress at the moment. And if you do retaliate, that is why. Or if you do go into micromanager mode or hoarder or whatever mode you go into, there is an underlying reason why you've done that. Yeah. And it, it fits under vulnerability, that one that one building block of vulnerability. And, and you know, we all know as bosses that our job is to role model it. So, you know, let's be real. Even though our employees aren't bosses, they bring out these bad boss traits themselves. So, you know, by us being vulnerable and us, you know, communicating, it's showing our people, you know what? We're human. We make mistakes. When you've got a bad day, you do the same thing. So, you know, to prevent them. And also, if you think about a lot of your bad boss traits, and I think I said this at one point in time, I can point to the person that actually not made me a bad boss, but I learned it from them. Because we all learn from our same, bosses. Same, same. Yeah, yeah. One of my very early bosses, absolutely. Yeah, they yeah. shape us. And I can see her coming out when I'm under pressure or when I'm dealing with people who are 
just not doing not doing what it what it was I explained them to do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's having that awareness, but also move trying to move beyond that as well. Deborah, I've absolutely loved this conversation. The question I ask everyone who comes on to the Happier at Work podcast, what does being happier at work mean to you? If anyone has ever heard me talk, I always do things in threes. Sorry about that. So for me, there's three parts of what makes me happy. One is what I do. So am I making a difference? Am I paying it forward? That's like happiness for me. Like I've got a huge smile just in this conversation today. Um, How I do it? Am I enjoying the way that we do the work? You know, like, is it free flowing, autonomous? Are we getting creative? So the how, and then also how I feel. And those are the two I neglected before, but happiness to me is trying to have that balanced feeling and feeling like I'm doing a great job at work. I'm also doing a great job with my family and myself personally. So those three things are happiness. Brilliant. I love that. If people want to find out more about you, about your upcoming book and your previous books, what's the best way they can do that? LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn. But then um, I've got a website, uh, debcohr.com, where being a pay it forward person, there's lots of free information. So there's um, blogs, there's free downloads. When the book comes out, I'll have the survey there and I'll have a free excerpt for it. So yeah, probably those two places are the best ways to see it. Thank you so much. Absolutely loved this conversation today, talking about former bosses, talking about myself as a boss um, and learning loads as well about the different bad boss types. So would absolutely love to thank you for your time and this conversation today. Thank you so much. That was Deborah Corey talking all things bad bosses. And I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what action that you're going to be taking as a result of listening to today's episode. You'll find all of my links on my website, happieratwork.ie. So back to the conversation with Deborah. We started by talking about some of the mistakes that she has made in her career, and they're certainly relatable. So the first one that she mentioned was that in order to get ahead, I had to not share my full self. So it's not being able to bring your full self to work, not being able to feel like you're being authentic to who you really are and leading in a way that is really true to yourself. She went on to mention then that she used to accept things as they were so that she didn't challenge the status quo. And thinking about, is there anything at the moment that you feel could be challenged in the work that you're doing? And how would you challenge that? And then the other one was about being afraid. So being afraid to speak up. But the lesson is, don't be afraid. Speak up. Use the nerves to fuel you, to fuel whatever you are doing. We went on then to talk about bad bosses and this concept of being a bad boss. And oftentimes, if we hear a description, we might think, that's not me. But if you take a quiz or an assessment in relation to the behaviours, the way that you're showing up at work, then what you might find is that you're displaying some of the behaviours, even if you're not necessarily aware of them. So it's about, first of all, becoming aware. So raising that awareness, that could be through reflection, that could be from feedback. Another thing worth noting is that if you are being managed by a bad boss, have a think about whether or not they perceive themselves as a bad boss. Are they doing it deliberately? Is it intentional? Or are they trying to come from a good place? but just unintentionally getting it wrong. 
once you become aware of the issue, then it's about accepting it that, you know, we're all human and we do make mistakes and we're not aware of absolutely everything until we become aware of it. And then once you accept it, it's about taking action. So what action can you take to improve your behavior or improve your perception in the eyes of others? We talked briefly about why some people don't share feedback and it's from a good place that they don't want to hurt other people's feelings. But actually, there's an episode about this previously about how to deliver effective feedback. It's really about seeing feedback as a gift. It's a way to help people in their career. So when people really need to have that feedback, think about it as doing something kind for them. It might not be nice, but it's certainly kind. We went on then to talk about the 10 different types of bad boss. I'm not going to repeat them all now, but uh, she mentioned that some of the most common ones were the avoider, the micromanager and the unappreciator. So this makes me think that if there's someone on your team that you haven't shown any recognition or appreciation to recently, then why not do that right now? We went into a bit more detail then on the micromanager and some of the traps when people turn into micromanagers because they think it's what people need. They think people need the holding hand and we feel like we don't have time to teach people so we keep things for ourselves and, and very explicitly tell them how things need to be done. I know I certainly can relate to this being on the giving and also on the receiving end of micromanagement. But the consequences of that is that it slows people down it drives low morale within the team or within the organisation and it doesn't give people the opportunity to develop. It really stifles creativity and innovation within the team or the organisation as well. We talked also about the 14 building blocks to making you a great boss. Now, again, I'm not going to repeat all of the 14, but some of the key points that I took from that was about building trust. And that's something, again, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast managing expectations and setting really clear expectations. So it's a two-way street. And we touched on this idea of mind reading. So sometimes we expect people to be able to read our minds without explicitly telling them exactly what needs to be done or checking whether or not they've understood what is required. And the last thing I'll leave you with today is a bit of humour when Debbie was talking about how not to bring or rather, should I say, when Deborah was talking about how not to bring Debbie out. So she's sort of created this alter ego for when she goes into that stress mode and some of those bad boss traits come out and kind of turned it into a bit of humour as well. So maybe that's something that you can do with your team as well. Be a little bit vulnerable and share what does it feel like when you get stressed and what kind of perhaps negative traits come out or what kind of bad boss traits come out when you get a bit stressed and it alleviates the tension, it alleviates the stress a little bit. That's it for this week's episode of the Happier at Work podcast. As I mentioned earlier, I would love to hear your thoughts, get involved in the conversation. You'll find all of my social links on happieratwork.ie. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. And if you've made it this far, well done you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a rating, a review or share it with a friend. I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. And also, if you'd like to know more about how I can help you or your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.